Welcome to the Trauma Survivorhood Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, an IFS-informed trauma recovery coach. This show features interviews from guests all around the world as they share their impactful stories and deliver hope and inspiration through their personal post-traumatic growth. We explore and discuss resources and coping strategies to support the survivor community to thrive in their own healing journeys. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Trauma Survivorhood Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I have with me our special guest today, Carter McNamara. Carter grew up in a family afflicted by his mother's long-term alcoholism and drug addiction. His father died before he was born, and he was the youngest of four children. The older siblings dealt with his mother's physical and emotional abuse by moving out. His older siblings all left the house by the time Carter was 12. At a very young age, he had watched enough of what his mother had done to each of his siblings, so he learned how to deal with his mother by fighting back. He dealt with her rages by raging right back at her. He often took refuge by a local creek where he used a coffee can to dig himself a small hole where he could hide and no one could find him. By the age of 10, Carter became his mother's primary caretaker. When she would be so drunk or drugged out that she would stumble out of the house in her nightgown headed into town, he was the one who brought her back home, and then he blamed himself that she had somehow gotten out. And as much as he worked to keep her in, he worked just as hard to keep others out. He feared that if others found out about his situation, he would get put into the job corps or in jail. He admits that he did try to kill her a couple of times. Finally, when he was 15, his mother got committed to the state hospital for the umpteenth time, and his oldest sister agreed to take him in. This changed the course of his life. He went on to become a high school honor student, and he earned a bachelor's degree in psychology and computer science, also a master's in business administration, and a PhD in organizational psychology. However, as an adult, his rages stayed with him. In his new memoir, Wolf, A Memoir of Love and Atonement, this is about how he finally had to face his past traumas or lose his sanity, his relationship, and his career. His story is unique because there seems to be very few books about how the traumatized themselves often go on to traumatize others unless they learn to face their own past trauma. And he did indeed face his past trauma, find healing, save his relationship, and he and his wife recently celebrated their 41-year wedding anniversary. Carter, thank you so much for joining us here today. I just wanted to read quickly from Wolf, A Memoir of Love and Atonement, where you say, here I was sitting in our chair all alone. I must have sat there for an hour trying to convince myself that I had not flown into another blind rage. It was my worst fear, my body waging war and leaving me to deal with the carnage. By now, I was beginning to feel awfully heavy down in that damn chair. My back hurt like it always did when I sat in it, but this heaviness was far more than physical discomfort. I had dug myself into another hole, and this time I was falling far into it. My mind kept racing with questions that had no answers. Carter, again, thank you for joining us today. We're so privileged to have you here. We know that unhealed trauma, unhealed rage, and anger are very common in childhood survivors. And so you have found healing. You have been able to calm your destructive rage. You have done so much great work. Tell us more about your story. How did you get from there to here? 
First of all, thank you for the privilege of doing the podcast with you. Mm. Uh, I've read read your website, and it was it, it felt like coming back home. Oh, thanks, uh, thank you. Some of the things that you wrote and said about dealing with trauma were things that I, I read them on your website. For me, they took decades to realize. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but your question is a good one. My wife's name is Terry. And I, I say that right up front because she played such a role in my recovery. Uh, I think for someone who's gone through trauma, whether it's childhood trauma or even trauma in a relationship as an adult, you feel alone. Mm. You, you don't want to talk about the trauma. You, you think, first of all, you can bury it. Uh, you feel you'll be judged if you talk about it. You feel you'll be pitied. Uh, you feel ashamed that you were even part of it. Uh, and you don't know how to fix your problem anyway, so why even talk about it? Mm. For me, the turning point, I think, was, was my wife. She had been living with what I think are symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD that I was finally diagnosed with. And my symptoms were denial. I, I would I would say I'm fine I'm fine or detachment I'd be sitting with her but I'd be off someplace else but at their worst the symptoms were outbursts of anger or rage uh, I learned to deal with my mother's addiction to drugs and alcohol uh, where my siblings dealt with her differently I dealt with her with anger if she raged or came at me, I raged and came right back at her. And those tools work great for a child wanting to stay alive. But as an adult, if I felt threatened by a situation, I would get very angry. And she didn't grow up in a house like that. So here she is. She's. We love each other deeply. We've got children. We've got new jobs. We have a new home. We've got new cars. But at times she gets this, she has this Jekyll Hyde she's living with who suddenly becomes extremely angry. And she went into therapy. And it was one of the turning points for me that when she got healthier, that is when she wasn't ignoring me or, or trying to make me cured or fix me, when she started putting up boundaries of what I could do, what I could do with her, but what I couldn't do anymore because she wouldn't put up with it, reality hit me in the face. And finally, there was an event where uh, I, I should mention I was, I'd been in and out of therapy and didn't ever really take it seriously. I didn't have to. I was by myself. I didn't, there was nothing at stake. But living with her and the cute kids, the, the stresses of life, <clears throat> when they kicked in, I started getting more stressed and I started getting more rageful. Uh, there was a time where we were sitting having dinner and she was peeling an orange. I was drinking a glass of wine. My child had an upset stomach and was vomiting. And I blacked out. I woke up or I came conscious a block away in a park, having no idea what the hell just happened to me. And I went back in the house 
and she was sitting on the couch with her arm around each of our children, who were probably five and seven then, telling me to get out. And she's yelling at me. She's saying, you can't do this anymore. You've got to go to therapy. And the word therapy terrified me because I thought I'd convinced her that I was normal. <laughs> but all was lost. I figured if I don't go to therapy, I'm going to lose everything. So I got very fortunate. When I went to therapy, I, in, this was in 1992, and PTSD wasn't quite in the mainstream. She asked me about where was I sitting? What was I eating? What was my wife eating? And she said, what you just had were called triggers. She said, you've told me that your mother was an alcoholic. Did your mother drink wine? Did she eat split pea soup? Did she peel oranges? And I thought I was going to pass out sitting there in the therapy room because I realized that what what happened there in our living room when I blacked out and ended up a block away in the park was exactly what would happen as a child when my mother was binging. So I had a PTSD episode. And that was the best thing that could have happened to me because this therapist, she had a diagnosis of sorts. Unfortunately, she said, you're a victim of PTSD. And when she said victim, I got very angry and said, no, I'm not. But through her, her patience and, and her, her gentle way of working with me, she helped me realize that, yeah, I do have a condition and what I grew up with wasn't appropriate. And a turning point then was when she said, it's not your fault, Carter. Uh, you know, as a child, you think it is your fault. You, your head knows better, but your gut doesn't. So that's a long answer to a very good question, Sarah. It, it took for me a big time crisis that I knew I've got to go to therapy and I've got to embrace it. And it was my partner who her getting healthy really helped me. And I give her a lot of credit. I heard you when you said, you know, in the beginning with therapy, there wasn't anything at risk. There was nothing at stake. Right. And then, and then you found Terry and you're together and you're in love and you have children. Now there's a lot at stake. So this process, what did this look like when you were working? Cause now you're healing your own PTSD from your childhood while you're trying to heal your marriage and heal your, your relationship with your children. How was that how is that working those things together in this synergy? I guess I think I had two kinds of struggles. One was I had so many myths about therapy. And then secondly, I, concurrent to my own misunderstandings, my wife and I had two kids. We had new jobs. We just bought a house, had two cars, had a dog. All those stresses kept building. And my body was reminding me that, hey, this is stressful. My mind was saying, you can forget about all of this. But my symptoms of my post-traumatic stress disorder were getting worse and worse. And I'm in therapy, terrified in therapy. 
And I think the two things that really were breakthroughs for me was number one, the therapist sat me down and asked me, what do you think about being in therapy? And I told her I was ashamed that, that I was mentally ill, that I'm broken, uh, that it's my fault. Uh, and I told her all the reasons I didn't want to talk about the past, that I can't even remember it. I'm having blackouts. And she helped me realize that because you're in therapy, the people are not broken. The situation is. She said, your PTSD is a very normal reaction, Carter, to a very abnormal situation. And she helped me to kind of reframe that, that I'm not broken. It isn't my fault that I don't have anything to be ashamed of, but I've got to take this therapy seriously or I'm going to lose my family. The other thing that helped me deal with the stresses especially was in taking therapy seriously, I would write down notes after each session. I go to a park and I would write down everything that was said, the insights I had from it, and I would work to try to share it with Terry, my partner. And that took a while, but she would listen. She didn't say, oh, that's, that's too bad. She didn't interrupt me and try to give me a new dice. She didn't try to, to fix me. She never interrupted me and said, well, I know somebody who had it just as bad. Because of the way she listened to me, I think our relationship grew. It became where I thought we were really honest with each other, we became completely authentic. I was able to accept myself and feel accepted. I'd never really grown up with unconditional love. Once I felt it, I had this great big safety net, Sarah. I can really appreciate that you included her in your healing by coming home and sharing with her what had been you know, what had transpired in therapy. So I imagine that also had a healing effect on her as much as it did for you to be able to feel her love and acceptance, but for her to feel included and to see the growing progress, you know, and, and to gain a better understanding into you, you know, so there was just a lot of, a lot of healing in there. And I, I know a big, obviously the, the book is called Wolf, a memoir of love and atonement. And so obviously atonement is a really huge topic here. Um, can you tell us what does atonement mean to you? What does that even look like when you've caused so much, you know, albeit unintentional harm or damage to others while you were healing, obviously your children and your, and your wife kind of taking the brunt. So what is, what does that atonement mean? That's another good question. In my therapy, I began reading everything I could about post-traumatic stress disorder. I read everything I could about being an adult child of an alcoholic. I read memoirs. My shelf here is stacked with them. What I wasn't encountering was, what do you do when you're going through therapy and you realize that in not facing your past, you yourself caused a lot of trauma in your immediate family? And I think it came to me because I'd grown up feeling guilt about being Carter, you know, they say that guilt is, is feeling bad about an event and shame is feeling bad about yourself. Right. Right. 
shame is guilt that, that you're even alive. Guilt was a natural emotion for me. And I knew when I was even nearing the end of my therapy, which included one-on-one -on -one therapy and then group therapy. I'm not a vet veteran, but I was in a group of veterans. They started talking about how bad they felt about what they'd done to their wives and their kids. And when they would say that, I would feel like I just stepped into a cold shower. Wow. And I knew something was something was really wrong. It kept haunting me. And I think I was telling my wife about this and <clears throat> I just found myself crying. I was sobbing and I just kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she kept saying, it's not your fault. As the therapist had said, your childhood is not your fault. The trauma you went through is not your fault. I kept saying, yes, it is. And it, it hit me. I was sitting at a kitchen table and it hit me. I had, my children grew up with me raging at them at times. And I didn't want to expire in this life, taking that with me, the, the, the guilt of all of that. And so I knew I needed to tell my kids, I needed to convey to my kids that I love them and I respect them enough to tell them the truth. I need to respect them enough to know that they knew I was hiding something from them. I'll, I'll tell you just a quick side story. It's three. It's the thing that made me start writing the book. My daughter and I go up on a retreat every winter to the northern woods in Minnesota, and we use the time to reflect on the past year and what what's in the coming year. And she was a new young mother talking about raising children and wanting to be a good parent. And kind of in an offhand way, she said, well, I hope that nothing so painful happens that, that I can't still tell them the truth. And then she said, my brother and I, and this is my daughter talking about my son, her brother. She said, we, we both knew we should never ask you about your childhood. And then she went on talking. And I could feel my face get hot, red hot. I was really angry. And I was angry because she confronted me with that. But she was telling the truth. For 18 years, 19 years, they lived in this house. They never asked me about my childhood. And in my therapy, when I realized they'd grown up with half of a dad, I realized again, I don't want them to live a, a lie like I grew up with my mother who, who was never telling the truth. So, so I actually, in baby boomer fashion, I went out and started researching, how do you say I'm sorry? <laughs> how do I atone for what it is that I did to my family? And I realized it's not as easy as just saying sorry. Right. It, it's that you need to think about what you did to that person. How did they probably feel when you did it? Mm. What could you do to make amends to them? Mm. And then you can, you can say, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness. But it's up to them. And so I sat down with, well, my wife, 
and then with my daughter and then with my son and went through kind of a, a procedure like that saying to my daughter and my son, you grew up with a father who was flaming into rages and would never tell you why. And I told them, I have some reasons. They're not excuses, but I had some reasons. And here's some of the things I grew up with my mother. And, that, and again, this is telling them for the first time after 30 years. And, and what Oprah Winfrey says, you know, if, if, you, if you forgive somebody, you're not doing it for them, you're doing it for yourself. Right. And she was spot on because it, uh, I felt like I had stepped into a cool shower on a hot day. Mm. Each of them, especially my daughter, said, I didn't know you went through that. And she was, she was emotional. Wow. And she said... She said, there's two kinds of forgiveness. And I put this in my, my memoir, The Wolf Book. She said, there's intellectual forgiveness. There's forgiveness on an emotional level. And she said, the kind of man, the kind of father, <laughs> no, I'm going to get emotional myself. Mm -hmm. She said, the kind of father that you turned out to be, I forgive you. She said, the kind of situation you went through, I forgive you. But she thanked me for telling her those some of my background. Yeah. Uh, my my son did not forgive me. Mm. Uh, he was much more sensitive than my daughter. And I think he still carries some of the same feelings and symptoms, Sarah, that I did about my mother. Mm. But the atonement also carried into, and here's where some people might think the book is bizarre or therapists might even question me but my mother died when I was in my early 20s and for the next 40 years whenever I made a mistake as a, an adult I would never blame myself I would just say privately to myself well I grew up in a terrible childhood and it's not my fault because I had a terrible mother you know I would think that 40 years after she was dead I was still scapegoating her my therapy had several breakthroughs for me one of which was to realize my mother was just she was an addict she was a human being who was a drug addict and an alcoholic but she was a human being and it's cliche to say that she was not perfect that's not the, the point is she was struggling probably with pain that she had as a child you know we've learned about something called epigenetics where trauma can actually be inherited Trauma, yeah. So she probably inherited her own issues, just like I inherited from her. So in the book, I describe how I sat down with a picture of her and thought about my past, thought about my therapy, and talked to Terry. And I was able to forgive my mother. Mm. Now, I should add quickly, there's a lot of belief currently in the literature about recovery from trauma that you don't have to forgive your abuser. And I agree. Right. It just worked for me. I'm not saying it has to be in recovery for other people. Everybody's different that way. But you'd asked about the atonement. And for me, it was a key aspect of my recovery. I wish people would write about it more. The atonement that accounted a lot for me was atoning to my family that, doggone it, I had reasons for my rages when they were little. 
but I didn't have excuses. So thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, it's it. I'm hearing this idea of of love with action, right? Like it's there is there is love there, and they're saying I'm sorry, but there's an action behind it. You know, really coming for that actual atonement, which can really bridge the gap between relationships. So, just think that's really beautiful that you that you took the time, you know, to kind of explain that so that they could understand that better and understand you and whether they accepted it or they didn't, whether they forgave or didn't, at least now they have this understanding, you know, and there's, there can be a compassion there, you know, and um, yeah, it can, it can really open up the heart strings to kind of go, okay, so you're a human that went through a lot of stuff. And then that stuff made you do a lot of other stuff until you could find healing, you know, un- unhealed trauma is, is destructive. It, it can't, it's can't be good. It can't be perfect. It can't be healthy. It's not going to, it's not going to yield great results all the time because it's unhealed, right? You mentioned a key aspect of your therapy because you went from, from private therapy into, into support group therapy. And I know that you, um, you know, really agree with that peer support group model. Can you tell us a little bit about what that what that is, and and why do you recommend that for trauma survivors? I was very fortunate, although it was early '90s, uh, there really wasn't much support. I think in terms of domestic abuse survivors, there was an exploding amount for veterans from the battlefield, mm. and my one-on-one therapist knew somebody who knew somebody who was facilitating group therapy for PTSD. And it was a group that had a domestic abuse survivor as a member. Mm. And so I was accepted into that group. And that was as important as the one-on-one for me, maybe not for everybody, but for me. There were four vets who talked about battlefield experience but the other domestic abuse survivor, including me, uh, we could relate to everything the soldiers were saying about what they'd done on the battlefield and vice versa. One of the greatest outcomes there I got from one-on-one therapy and group therapy was I had a chance to just be honest and feel someone listen to me. I felt validated. I'd grown up with the exact opposite as a child. I wanted to find a way where people could get together, even informally, and listen to each other in a trusting environment, share where they're at right now, and like you'd said a few minutes ago, find a way to act on it, to take action on it. And I quit a full-time job in which I was making a lot of money just so I could do the research to find a way that we could create then what I call peer support groups. Some people would call them peer coaching groups now. But I got very fortunate that I was work, I found a job with a nonprofit that got a two-year grant from a private individual for me to go off and do my research. Mm-hmm. And what I found was if I got small groups of people together who had something in common, and they learned the basics about how do you listen to somebody and not interrupt, don't solve their problem, don't fix them, but just listen. And if you help them come to something they can do, however small or realistic about their situation, 
then they'll always keep coming back to the meetings. <laughs> People who are busy won't go to meetings unless they get their needs met. And in this group format that I was doing the research on, we came up with a simple framework where five to six people meet, they each get individual time to say, what's going with you, on with you now that's important? And we didn't talk about the past. They talked about what's going on now. What are the, and, and it was very what they call strength-based now. So they would talk about their hopes, their visions, their dreams. What is it that they want to end up doing? What would that look like? And then before the next meeting, what's something you can do that is realistic, that's not talking or thinking, but something we would see or hear you doing if you did it? And how can we help you as a group before we meet? That little simple framework took off. But the key thing was not solving the problem. The listening was handy, yeah. But the bottom line was when people were in that meeting, they felt authentic. They were honored and listened to in a way that was non-judgmental. I know for your memoir, you told us a little bit about what your inspiration was in, in writing it, but who is this book actually for? Who should be out there reading this, this memoir? I wrote the book really for people in childhood pain, but that's what I, what I went through. But there's so much similarity between the trauma, the pain, the coping mechanisms, the therapy of, of an adult in a terrible relationship or a relationship that isn't thriving. Similarity to that as a helpless child who is living in a, a horror twilight zone. So I wrote the book for both, and I'm glad in the podcast that we've been able to make that clear. The, the, the book would be very useful to somebody in a relationship who wants it to be more honest. For somebody who wants to help their partner start to share, who wants to be there for their partner. And, and it's also how that traumatized adult partner can begin to talk. For me, I think people who haven't been in that situation struggle to understand, why don't people just start talking then? Oh my gosh, it's almost impossible to go back and share something that you've been through like that. The book is a perfect example how. I'm not a, a trained therapist, but I've got a, a PhD in organizational psychology. I've got the, the, the head learning, sure. But as a child and as an adult, I had to go through finally opening up. It, it's one of the few books I've read that's a real life story, an inspirational story of how you can make a relationship better. So many books of love stories are about courtship, romance, death or divorce. This is about a relationship that lasts. That's who, who I, I wrote it for. Marriage counselors, therapists, uh, ministers. Yeah. I always like to ask all of our guests, um, it sounds like obviously this therapist and then the group therapy that you were able to be in were really just very, very valuable resources for you. Was there anything else when you were in your journey, in your healing journey, that were catalyst in, in that healing? 
Uh, um, um, there's a few key books that were really helpful to me. One is called The Body Keeps the Score. It's by Bessel van der F-O-L-K. If you just type in The Body Keeps the Score. It'll pop right up. Yep. Another one is The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog by Bruce Perry. And then the last one I'd say is What My Bones Know by oh. Stephanie Fu. Oh, Carter, I, I appreciate this conversation so much. I thank you for uh, for putting the the book out, for putting the memoir out. I'm going to have the 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 book linked up. I'm going to have your contact information all linked up, um, and I'm going to have up uh, the resources that you've that you've mentioned here today. And um, we'll get that all linked up in the show notes for people below, where they can reach out and contact you, uh, where they can find some peer support groups for themselves. You've got a lot of great information as well um, on your site, so we'll make sure that the that the people can get to that information. And I just thank you for joining the conversation today here and, and bringing us some some really great resources and a beautiful inspiring story thank you thank you for the work you do sarah mm, you're so welcome take care have a great rest of your day thank you for listening or watching this episode of trauma survivorhood for more info show notes and links check out the episode guide below until next time be well survivors